Welcome to the Sunday Morning Linux Review with Tony Bemis from Bemis Hosting. And Matt Enders with Charter School IT Techs. All right, Matt. Uh, so what's going on with the kernel they're doing this week? All right. This is what's going on with the kernel. In the release status, the 3.1 kernel is out. Linus released the 3.1 kernel on 10.24. Some of the big features in this slightly delayed release are an improved Zen memory management enhancements to process tracing, that's the ptrace underscore c's command, enhancements also to lseek, which is going to aid in finding holes in files. Then the open risk architecture is also now supported, I guess. Uh, not exactly. My note's a little unclear there. It says, and open risk architecture support. So, <laughs> and then as of 1026, around 4,400 patches have been pulled into the mainline kernel tree for the 3.2 release. The trees pulled in so far include the networking tree, USB, staging, and security. We'll have a full merge window summary next week. Stable updates. Kernel 3.0.8 was released on 1025 with the usual load of important fixes. There were 37 files changed. 413 file insertions, and 194 files deleted. And here's what Linus has to say. What worries me more than the kernel summit is just that the 3.1 release cycle has dragged out longer than usual, so I'm a bit afraid that the 3.2 merge window will just be more chaotic than usual, just because there might be more stuff there to be merged. But that's independent of any KS issues, and I also suspect that the added time for development has been largely nullified by the productivity lost due to the K-Org mess. Yeah, 4,500 patches, that's 10. Well, yeah, but it's because they merged in those whole trees. Oh, yeah. So the distro news. Distro news. That's on you, buddy. All right. For the distros this week, uh, actually last week at the end of the week, uh, we had Zevin OS 2.0, Neptune was released, and Phoenix uh, 10.3 or 103. Um, not sure don't know much about those two other than uh, Phoenix is a Debian-based live CD system for administrators. Uh, and Zevin is, um, what does it say, uh, it's Debian-based also, uh, KDE and LXDE desktop. They have also added a new forensic mode in Phoenix. Because forensics is different than like you do, would do for system recovery. Forensics, forensics will do things for you like letting you examine files and their date stamps without changing anything because if you're if you're doing like for criminal recovery working on someone's computer that's like been suspected of a crime right. you don't want to actually make any changes to it and yeah, one, of the, one of the first things you do is just make an image of the entire drive and then work on the image don't work on the drive right cool and then for this week's uh releases. It's Puppy Linux 5.3, Slacko, and Saline OS 1.5. You know, Slacko, it's uh, because it's binary compliant, or I'm sorry, binary compatible with Slackware Unix. Oh, so Puppy's, Puppy hasn't always been based on Slackware, have they? They must have, are they switching to, the, to Slackware based? I'm not sure if that, if it's that or if it's just for this release. I, would, I don't would think it switch, would make sense. Yeah, why it would you switch for one release? Right. Um, I don't know. Don't know much about Puppy. But coming up in the next uh, while, uh, FreeBSD is going to be coming out with a new release, and uh, SUSE. 
FreeBSD is coming out with a new one? Will be. They just had a FreeBSD just had a release. The I think it was development release. No, eight two was. Oh, but nine zero is coming out. Uh, the development RC one just was released for nine zero. I did for nine zero. Yeah, and then SUSE uh, development RC one. Oh, you mean PCBSD, not FreeBSD, right? Both FreeBSD, PCBSD. If you go to distrowatch.com, I'm there. Yeah, on 10.23, FreeBSD 9.0 RC1. Oh. Ken Smith I, I hadn't is, scrolled down the page far enough. <laughs> Ken Smith has announced the availability of uh, delayed release candidate. And then for this week's distros of the week, for as in hit counts on their websites, we have number one, Mint. All right. Oops. I changed it to year 2007 instead of seven days. <laughs> that was pretty bad information. Yeah. And then Ubuntu. But now I'm surprised that Ubuntu got kicked off uh, number one. It's about time people started realizing the real distribution. Well, Mint has new. was just released too, right? You know, We talked about that, that there's always an uh, uptick in hits when their new release is out. Yes. Uh, and then OpenSUSE. Number three, and then with Fedora and Debian coming up in four and five, respectively. Ooh, Debian is down. Debian's what I like to install on servers, just straight up Debian. Right. Debian down, Fedora's down, Susie's up. And the puppy's coming up in number six down there. Well, they just had a release. Right. But I don't, I don't think Mint just had a release. You know, because I'm running Mint Debian, so that's a rolling release. So I don't oh. really, I don't really follow when they actually have the releases on the other stuff. Sure. So. I know that's about it. what I have for distros. Anything uh, you want to talk about? Do have a rethink a little bit on my position on Secure Boot. All I right. was doing some more reading and some more thinking, so we're gonna have an update on. My rant on Secure Boot from last week. (laughs) So this is going to be rant modified or rant light, I guess, because I've changed my position a little bit. The Secure Boot feature that will appear in PC firmware shortly, due in large part to a mandate from Microsoft, has caused many reactions. On one side, there's a free software foundation. There's the Free Software Foundation asking for signatures to stand up for your freedom to install free software. Then you have stooges like Edbot accusing Linux fanatics of wanting to make Windows 8 less secure. The problem started earlier this year when the Unified Extensible Firmware Interface, UEFI specification, has an optional secure boot feature. This has the potential to be a useful feature since it could prevent malware from infecting signed components. However, it is also a threat to open source operating systems like Linux by making it impossible to boot these on secured systems. In June, the concern was that a fair amount of pressure would be applied by Microsoft to enable this feature. This came to fruition when Microsoft said, in order to get a Windows 8 logo, Secure Boot will be required. Most OEMs will want to qualify for this and the subsequent marketing funds that will most likely come with the program. Ipso facto, Microsoft requiring Secure Boot makes it mandatory for OEMs. The problem? The obvious problem with Secure Boot is that it could only allow Microsoft operating systems to boot. As Matthew Garrett wrote, a system that ships with Microsoft signing keys and no others will be unable to perform Secure Boot of any operating system other than Microsoft's. 
No other vendor has the same position of power over the hardware vendors. In October, Garrett wrote a follow-up to his earlier post on SecureBoot where he says the real problem is whether the end user will be able to manage the keys on their machines. Even then, only enterprise Linux vendors will have their own keys. What happens to all the Libra distros or hobbyists running from scratch? Matthew Garrett says the workaround is to turn off SecureBoot. However, it does not do anyone any good for Linux installation to require disabling a legitimate security feature. Then, the on-off switch won't be in a standard location causing a support nightmare. The right fix, according to Garrett, is instead of requiring SecureBoot to be disabled, we need to work on a way for the feature to be supported in Linux installations. And again, feature in air quotes. The solution, according to Garrett, is a proposal put forward to the UEFI forum that lets users install their own keys from movable media. This avoids problems with booting untrusted binaries, requiring movable media say that seven times real fast, requiring removable media prevents malware from installing as it won't be able to install the key. Then SecureBoot would just fall back into system recovery. It is most probable that malware will infect USB keys or other removable media. However, allowing users, to con users control is also allowing for some risk. In my opinion, the worst case scenario, a flood of restricted boot machines incapable of booting Linux or any other Anything other than signed Windows 8 seems unlikely. We are also far from Garrett's proposal. Users who want complete control, there actually is a period in there, I kind of read that wrong. It says, we are also far from Garrett's proposal, period. Users who want complete control of their machines need to stay abreast of this process to ensure that OEMs know that being able to disable Secure Boot is not enough. To really control our machines, we need to have the ability to install our own trusted keys. So what do you think? Have you done any reading at all this week on the Secure Boot crap? I have not. But I, I think the uh, making sure you can install your own keys is a big thing. And that the, the large uh, Linux distros are going to have their own keys. Well, you know, again, the enterprise distribution, like, sure, not OpenSUSE, but SUSE will. Yes, who said Red Hat and, we know. Right? And Red Hat will, not Fedora, but Red Hat will. Right. You but, know. but I think even Fedora, Ubuntu... But then Debian, what happens to CentOS? CentOS doesn't have a key. CentOS gets their own key. How do they? How are they, how are they going to afford their own key? Okay. I, I'm assuming, I I'm assuming to there's going to be some type of a, a fee or... You're just not going to be able to get keys. Because if you are, Joe Schmo Virus Writer over in Wujibujistan, would be able to get his own key, and then you're just F, right? Right. Well, maybe you can do something along the lines, uh, you know, kind of like how uh, Secure uh, CA, you know, certs for websites are going. You know, have, because they're... But then you'd have to access the Internet for the boot process to work. No. Uh, because the uh, Secure, or uh, a key has a time stamp on it and when it expires so you can for the hardware ones just don't have an expi expiration date on there but you know what i mean i mean it's going to be distributed in that sort of sense so if you need it you can get it but you know it just won't be in the same mechanism how what website certifications or certs ssl certs run right now I don't know. It's still hopefully far enough away that they'll work something out. But yeah. 
That's my hope. I really don't think we're going to get a ton of machines flooding the market that are going to be restricted boot to Microsoft Windows 8 only. So. Yeah, and I think there's still going to be, uh, you know, the other machines that you can build yourself. That it's you the BIOS, can... though. I mean, are BIOS manufacturers going to make multiple BIOSes? Well, there's most OEMs have their own custom uh, boards built, and they have custom BIOSes on those. So, say if, uh, the even though Dell's have an Asus board in them, you're going to go buy a, an Asus board off the shelf. It's not going to have the same BIOS. So in that BIOS, so your so Dell, your solution to the secure boot feature is is everybody needs to build their own machines. Uh, I wouldn't say that's a solution. That's an option. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you can build your own app. You can build your own or like Asus. You know, they sell machines that don't have the Windows logo on them, right? I, I don't know. I, I don't know either. I mean, but there's some of them out there that do. Well, yeah. I mean, you can buy from custom builders like seventy System 76. Right. But then, yeah, it gets expensive. A little bit. So. Yeah. So, so I've got a little bit of news going on this week so far. Amazon is introducing a new ebook format. The new You're infringing on my rant a little bit here. Oh, I am. We'll get to that. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> All right. The uh no, this is just about their ebook, the Fire, the Kindle Fire. Oh, uh, well, no, I I'm not talking about the hardware. I'll be talking about something else having to do with Kindle and Oh. All right. Well, see, their new format is, they call it the Kindle F, or it's the KF8, or the Kindle Format 8. Right. And it's based on HTML5. And with that, Amazon aims to bring some flexibility and power to HTML, uh, that HTML5 offers to the world of ebooks. HTML5 features such as CSS3 formatting, nested tables, SVG graphics, embedded fonts and and borders uh, and borders all uh, what uh, anyway the new format includes a much richer layout options including fixed layouts that are essential for accurate reproduction for many children's books and panel based layouts for comic books books can include sidebars and callouts text Overlays on background images, boxes, drop caps, and more. So it's really what are they going to turn it into a, a little web browser that all the books can run in a HTML5 web browser? That's kind of interesting. Yeah, and I, I can see it, it well, be really good because it kind of it kind of goes into my 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 bit here because the uh, my problem was yesterday. Okay, pretty late at night. Between 11 o'clock and midnight, Eastern Standard Time, or Daylight Time, I guess. But anyway, the uh, I I really wanted to get this book on PF Sense, okay? But I wanted it right now. Sure. You know how we have that, most of us computer geeks have that instant gratification kind of thing where I don't want to wait a week and a half for this thing to ship to me. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I also don't own a Kindle. Mm-hmm. And I also don't have a Mac or a Windows machine. I, I run Linux. So all of those Kindle readers that are free, huh? 
aren't for Linux, you can't run Linux on any of them. Hmm. You can't run any of them on Linux, even though they have it for the Android platform, so that sounds a little hinky to me. But anyway, I could have gotten it for my BlackBerry, but have you ever tried to read a book on a BlackBerry? <laughs> no, that'd be way too small. Yeah, not a, not, a pleasant, not a pleasant thing. So I discovered Amazon has this new thing called the Cloud Reader. Hey. Okay. So basically what it is is all your content stored online and you have to read it in your browser, but it requires a browser plugin. Okay. One of the browsers that it's compatible with is Chrome, which I, I run. I install sure. the I install the Chrome the Google repositories and install straight Chrome. None of that Chromium crap. Yeah. So, um so I got and installed the plugin. And then I went to the cloud reader and it recognized that I had the plugin and it gave me the cloud reader interface and then I clicked on the the shop the buy a book now button and it took me right to the Kindle store and I was able to select PF Sense and then when I clicked buy it it said you do not have a registered Kindle device oh, you no. cannot buy this what you cannot buy a Kindle book without a Kindle device being registered what are you trying to do <laughs> <laughs> and it just kind of like freaked out seven ways from Sunday I spent like two hours trying to buy this freaking book last no way. night and it couldn't do it so, I finally just gave up, and, and today I was very busy all day. I, I didn't even have a chance to stop and do anything until we sat down here to do this recording today. So, I, we, we were talking a little bit before we got started, and right before we got started, I went to the cloud reader and tried to buy this PFSense book, and it worked today. So, ah. so my, that rant was all for nothing, because I guess I just had to give it a day. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't understand why I had to give it a day, but I had to give it a day. All right, all right. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's really annoying because you want to do something and then it's stopping you. It is. It is. It, I, and I was pretty irritated last night because I was tired. It was late at night, and I wanted the book now. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> okay. But uh, even though you probably weren't, but it's read all it good. Last night. But it, but it, it ultimately is a beautiful thing. I mean, because now I can get all the I can get Kindle books and. And read them on my Linux machines. This cloud reader is uh, hopefully going to be a beautiful thing. I haven't actually tried to read the book from it yet, but it tells me that I have it in my cloud library. So. Awesome. All right. Yeah, that's good. And then, uh, so that's, what is the cloud reader or cloud library is uh, available on any uh, HTML5? Any? Well, no, you have to. It's, it, it requires a plugin, uh, and it requires only for certain browsers. Chrome's one of the browsers, Safari's one of the browsers. And there was another one, but I don't remember what it was. Not Firefox. Uh, I don't believe it was Firefox, mm. and it definitely was not IE. Awesome. So, <laughs> so yeah. All right. Yeah, that's good. So, because I'm not opposed to DRM. I mean, if if the book publisher wants to make money, that's fine. If the author wants to make money, that's fine. I don't care. And if it's a product I want to, you know, use and enjoy, then it's a product I'm going to pay for and use and enjoy. I mean. I, I really don't think everything needs to be open source. Ooh, come and get me, Richard Stallman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think that's exciting with uh, being able to read it on your laptops and then mm-hmm. bring in uh, HTML5 to the readers because you can get a real rich format. It's not just the... Well, and brain. I'm assuming that this, this HTML5 format that they're talking about for this Kindle Fire, that has something to do with this cloud reader, too. I'm, I'm sure it is, because most of the Kindles, or if not all of them now, have it where you can, it's all stored on the cloud, and then whenever you want it, or if you go to another machine, you just connect to the internet and you, and you download it. Yep. 
so there's no more worrying about whether you're backing up your own PC, whether you're going to lose your books. It's nice. Have you ever heard of SCALE? SCALE, it's familiar. I'm not exactly sure what the acronym is, but I've definitely heard of it. I tried looking it up, too, and I couldn't find it, but anybody out there uh, knows, let me know. But they released that they're going to have a event in, on January 20, 20th through the 22nd in Los Angeles. It's going to be open source for kids. And uh, one of the people uh, uh, going to be there talking is the people behind OLPC and talking about their new stuff. So that's that's kind of exciting. And uh, I, I think it's good bringing kids into open source and, uh, you know, it'll help with... Yeah, that, that goes into something. I was reading another article on... Uh... LWN today about let me get to it it was about the aging kernel hackers and let's see here we are uh, where was it I can't find that but it was anyway it was about how when Linux was first came about, all the kernel hackers were these really young guys, and, and it was the cutting edge, and it was the young, cool thing to be this Linux kernel hacker. Now they're all older, and it was making a joke of how like they're all in bed by 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock is the latest, and, yeah. and, and it was just kind of funny. And uh, they were saying that it's just the, that's what you're seeing at the conference, because they're the maintainers, so the maintainers are older. But there's there's a lot of young blood that are that's coming in and still being active in the kernels. So. Yeah, that's exciting. I just found what scale means. Did you? It's, it's a Southern California Linux Expo. So it makes sense that they would have something open source, uh, but it's good bringing kids in. Like I said, it, it's the new blood. It's got to keep it running. Yes. Uh, here it is, Aging Hackers. After noting that many of the Kernel Summit participants were in bed by 9 or 10, Pottering asked whether the kernel community is getting too old, or as he put it, whether it has become an old man's club. Cox said that he saw a lot of fresh blood in the community, more than enough to sustain it. Torvalds noted that, though that the average, con average age at the summit has risen by one year every year, it's not quite that bad, he said. But he also believes that the kernel summit attendees are not an accurate reflection of the community as a whole. It tends to be maintainers that attend the summit, while many of the younger developers have not yet become maintainers. Part of the problem is one of perception, according to Torvalds. The Linux kernel crowds used to be notably young because of the older people ignored what those crazy Linux folks were doing, as he said. The kernel hackers had a reputation of being ridiculously young, but many of those same people are still around and are just older now. Cox noted that the kernel is now a stable project, and then it may be that some younger folks are gravitating to other projects that are more exciting. Those projects will eventually suffer the same fate, he said. See, so, yeah, it's all getting old, man. Sure. So talking about wrap-up or, or more information about previous talks, uh, you know, the ICANN is taking over the Olsen time zone database? Yes. Well, the... Uh, the Astrolabe company? Yes. They came out and said, oh, you know, we actually weren't looking for money. We just wanted to make a point about infringement. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Because ICANN got involved, which has got much bigger 
you know, boot heels than than right. than Astrolabe does. So, yeah, I, I knew that would happen as soon as I, I read that and put that put that out a couple of weeks ago. So, right, yeah, and it, it makes sense. It, it makes sense that they stop now because if that was the true inf- intent at the beginning, they wouldn't send a cease and desist. Right, you know, to begin with. Anyway, I, th- I think it's a it's a good thing that somebody powerful is still taking care of it. You know, that way if um, if Olsen himself, something happens to him, then there's still somebody running it. And I'm sure he had some kind of backup running for that. that well, it was, was it was two guys, and it was running on NIH's servers, and NIH isn't oh, going anywhere. Right, yeah, okay. So, talking about uh, uh, Patton things the apple they're threatening a small family-run cafe over a trademark this new company that it's um uh, what is it here let me start reading from my notes apple is threatening to sue a small family-run cafe in bonn because they are of the opinion that their logo infringes on apple's trademark the owner of the cafe applekind Applekind, Christian Romer, has registered her logo as a trademark for the service and fashion industry in June in Munich. Now Apple is claiming in, in a cease and desist letter that there could be a confusion between the small cafe in Braun and their global Oh, yeah, company. yeah, because you know how easily confused everyone is that a small cafe in Bonn might actually be Apple Corporation, and they'll try and go in there and buy an iMac. Yeah, really. So. And really, this and this little company, their uh, so Applekin is German for Apple Child. And if you look at their logo, if you click on the notes uh, in our show notes, it's a picture of an apple that looks nothing like the the Macintosh Apple logo, and it has a little kid's head in the middle of the apple. Really, uh, there's no confusion there. Uh, so it's it's crazy. They're just going cra- They're just going over that. Uh, makes me hate them more. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of Apple. Did you know that they were the first, Apple was the first uh, GPL infringer that was, like, sued? Really? But, yeah. Yeah, I, I forget what it was over. It was over some software, obviously way back when. But yeah, they were the first one that that they actually had to go and say, "Hey, it's GPL. Yeah. You, you you gotta you can't be doing because they were just like including it in their software without any notification, no attribution, nothing." Wow. Yeah, it sounds like something that they so do. That, that pissed Jobs off so bad that he was he's so anti-open source that they the, finally the only thing that they were still including that was open source was Samba just they had because they had to use it because they needed to interoperate with Windows machines yeah you know and the, and the sys protocol that's just that's just two time you can't reproduce that kind of stuff but I, I from what I understand they, they they had and they were actually getting rid of Samba in their newest release now, really so, yeah or they uh are they working on like a replacement for the SMB protocol, or that they're gonna? No, they're gonna to just write their own stuff uh, to to do it, I guess. Huh. Jeez. You know another thing about Apple that I didn't—I don't have my notes in front of me—but 
all these interviews about or with uh, Jobs is coming out that because now it's been what a week or two since his death and people are okay about talking bad about him again. <laughs> Apparently, he said that he was going to uh, rage nuclear war against uh, Android because at first they were okay with somebody you know oh they're just a little open source project. Well, now that Android has taken over and is what would we say a couple weeks ago seventy percent of the market yeah it's huge it's a huge number yeah well now he's he's just livid over it well, well obviously not and now. it's it, it it goes back to the same reason that everybody runs windows instead of apple software the reason everybody runs runs windows software instead of apple software is why 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 because it's more available mm, but why do you know back in the day when they both first started with Windows and the PC-based software, they didn't lock up the architecture. Oh, yeah. Okay? So you could, anybody could make the architecture and make an IBM clone and boom, 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 boom. And it was off to the races. Everybody and their uncle got in the game, right? Yeah. That's whereas right. So whereas what Apple did was they tied it to the hardware and locked up that hardware as proprietary also. You couldn't really have clones. Right. Well, it's the same with software, too. That they, yeah, it has to be a Mac approved software to run on a Mac. Right. Because um, they're so locked down. That's that's why I don't understand when you go to like all these Linux things and you see all these people with these Apple laptops just because at its core it may be running something open source. You know, the, the mock kernels down there hidden way, way underneath. But it's not. It's so locked down. I mean, they're more locked down than Microsoft. It's just horrible. And I just don't understand the open source community's fascination with Apple. I just don't right. get it. You know, as for software, I I don't like it. I, you know, I'm not into it. But their, their hardware is really good. Um, even they, now that they've switched to Intel hardware? I mean, because now they're just running. Even though it's, it's still, they have their own processor that they're running. Even though it's an Intel base or x86 processor, um, they... Or maybe it's for the uh, for the iPads and the iPods. Uh, they have something like a thousand people working for just working on the processor, when they have maybe a thousand people on everything else. So I mean, they do put a lot into their hardware. I to think make that's got to just be for like the iPad and stuff like that, and the iPhone, yeah. because and not for the desktops. Yeah, and no, laptops. that's all. That's just all stock Intel stuff. Yeah, yeah, because it's so much easier now to do a Hackintosh. Right. Because, yeah, one of my daughter's teachers actually runs a Hackintosh. So. <laughs> do you know that's illegal? You're not supposed Ooh. to do it. I didn't give his name up. I didn't give his name up. <laughs> <laughs> and what else? I, I saw an article today that was interesting was uh, uh, malware on Linux. So are we really there yet? Is it coming out? And But if you think about it, it's it's not, I mean, malware, it's not something that you normally think about, but... It's, you know, just untrusted sources can have. So that's why they've come out with all the, um, you know, the signatures for the sources that you use. And if it doesn't have a signature, then you don't know if it actually is good packages on there. And some people won't think about it. They'll just go ahead and install it anyways. And uh, and also, it's things that we've seen in the past, but nobody really thinks about it. But, you know, like bots, rootkits, and unknown commands, you know, just copy and paste something off the Internet. And then all of a sudden it borks your machine. Well, that's malware. It just comes in a different form from what Windows users see. Yeah, and and with browsers too. Browsers are so much often now becoming the platform. 
like so much stuff that you do on the internet is actually just running in the browser. So, I mean, I think that's the next attack vector actually are our malware browser plugin kind of stuff. Drive by browser plugin installation. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. So, and the, and Linux is definitely susceptible to that, you know, because as a regular standard user, you can install plugins in the browser. You don't have to be root to do that. So, yeah. That's the, all the news I have. You have anything else you want to talk about? No, I went off on my on my Amazon cloud reader rant already, so <laughs> I don't really have anything else. All right. What do any, we have for time? Any other projects? We're at uh, 35 minutes. Any other projects you're working no, on? No, it's just that PF sense that I've been working on for a while. I'm trying to just get my head around it. That's why I got the book. So Cool. We'll see. So you got it, the base install running? I do, and I've got I've actually got a test network up and running, and so that uh, and I've got two laptops on it, and it's passing packets great. It just didn't, it took hardly any configuration at all. It's, Sweet, it's where it works fantastic. So I'm sure I'm not using any of the features because I didn't turn them on. But. Right. <laughs> but yeah, it looks like it's working. So the problem was I accidentally polluted my entire uh, home network. When I first did it, because I did it, I hooked the I hooked it in wrong. <laughs> I, I wired the I wired the switch into the to my home network, and then took a feed from the switch to the to the PFSense firewall oh. machine, and then plugged in the my test laptops to the switch, and everything, and the whole network was going wonky. Oh yeah, you had a routing loop going on. Yeah, it was not good. Up, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she says that's my TV and everything in my house is on the <laughs> network. So, yeah, the, I heard some screams coming from upstairs and stuff. <laughs> and, What's going on? What's going on? I just kept my mouth shut and unplugged the wire. <laughs> <laughs> I had a customer one time, I went out to work on their stuff, and they're like, everything just stopped. I can't, I, you gotta get out here. So I drive out, and it's like 45 minute drive I get out there and I'm looking at everything yeah everything is just in a stop you can't get to the internet or one person can the other person can't I'm like what's going on I look over at their switch and there's it's it's like four computers and there's five things plugged in or no there was three computers and there was five things plugged in because one's an uplink and I'm like why is this extra thing plugged in I started tracing them all they plugged the same cable into two jacks <laughs> it was because I think so that was screwing everything up. I had the same thing happen at the customers that the one of my clients actually we do these recordings at uh, Gaudier Academy, and I had the same thing happened here uh, one year because the teachers are responsible for setting all the stuff in their own classroom up, the switches and the wires. Yeah. If they want to, if if they want to take the money out of their classroom budget to have me come in and do it, then I'll come in and do it. But nobody ever does that. Everybody always sets all their own <laughs> stuff up in the classroom. So then I got a call about a day before school was going to start that all of a sudden the entire network was down. Nothing was responding. Nobody could do anything. Oh, no. So I came and, and I'm like, they're right. Nothing's, nothing's responding. It's all going wonk, wonky. So I just unplugged everything in the server room. And then I just started plugging, plugging loops in. Okay, plug in all the servers. They're, okay, everything's still good. Everything's working. So everything in the server room's good. And then I started plugging classrooms in. Boom. Doop, doop. And when I got to this one classroom, as soon as I plugged that classroom in, boom, the whole network went down. Oh, like, oh something down there is messed up. So I unplugged that classroom, went down there, looked at their switch, same thing. Supposed to be four PCs plugged in, and there were six things plugged in there. Oh. They had all the PCs hooked up, 
They had their uplink hooked up, and then they had an extra wire plugged into two ports. Jeez. <laughs> so, so I unplugged everything and said, your problem was in this classroom. Yeah. <laughs> so do they change their policy after that? No, no, no. They still do it. <laughs> I guess they run the risk. So if anybody ever does it again, then I get another emergency call out. <laughs> so I'm not too... Too mad, I mean, because then I get to bill them, but. <laughs> right. So something I'm working on is XBMC. And it's a media center-based uh, software. And you can run it on any desktop. Uh, you can run it full screen and, and then just watch uh, any of your local content or online. Even it has a plug-in for, um, for TV, um, Myth TV. So you can do recording, running as a DVR for regular TV that you're running. Uh, and Myth TV works with HD home runs, so you can uh, still get HD content coming in with with Myth TV. I'm not using that part, but uh, I went through and on their website they have a, an XBMC Ubuntu setup. It's not an official like Ubuntu uh, thing, but their instructions are you take a minimal Ubuntu disk, and you load just the OS plus SSH on there, and then you reboot, and then you install just their minimal packages. So there's no, uh, yet they have, yeah, just their X program or there's XORG, and then their program running on top of that. There's no like display display manager um, or you know desktop or anything like that. So it's real lightweight. Uh, it boots fast. And it come to the point where I just treat it as another of my one of my media devices up there on my shelf where you know my DVD player I shut it off when I'm done with it. My Blu-ray player takes longer to boot than this thing does now. So I just hit the button, I wait about 30 seconds and I'm ready to watch online videos. So there's uh, ted.com has a plug-in for that and watch videos off of there and what about Hulu or Yeah, Hulu does. Although I tried using it, and I think you have to have the Hulu Plus account to run it. Oh, it doesn't run with the I'm, Hulu base? I'm sure there's probably a configuration I haven't gotten into yet. I've only been doing this for about three or four days now. But uh, there's a ton of a ton of plugins available. It's awesome. I would definitely... I'm going to get it for my desktop, and then when I'm out and want to watch some stuff, I can just bring that up. Because it, it, it's like an aggregator. It just brings everything together. You don't have to go to each one of the websites. Um, That's cool. Yeah, there's even one. I'm not sure how legal it is. Because what was that other one you were running? MCE was that Linux one? MCE? Linux MCE. That. Yeah, that's nice, but that's like a, a whole server client base, and your it doesn't your machines don't have to be dedicated to that, but it works best if it is. So you can't run your desktop and then run Linux MCE on top of it and switch between easily. You have to do a reboot, and it has to be dual booted to be able to get that to work. Hmm. Um, so now what do you? You're just running this thin. It's basically a really lightweight thing on on the box that, that's hooked up to the TV, and all the media is what still stored on your like your desktop or a it's, file server somewhere. I've I put a file server together. Yeah, I have uh, two 500 gig hard drives and two 250 drives that I have uh, a bunch of media on, and uh, so I set that up just as I I did a Ubuntu server install, and then I did like LAMP and um, uh, Samba, um, and then uh, what's your favorite thing um, for servers? 
the management webman. Oh, webman, webman. Web yeah, yeah. through web webman on there, and uh, it's something that I. You know used what I find funny about while, webman but, though? Huh? Is I really like it for some things, but then for other things, I just don't. Oh, and yeah. uh, as an example, DHCP. I use webmin, right? And so I go into the webmin interface, and I go to DHCP server, and then whenever I want to make a change, you know what I do? Hmm. I click the button that says edit config file. <laughs> <laughs> and I yeah. edit the config file by hand. So it's just because that's what I'm used to doing with DHCPD. But. Sure. And we have to do that with one of your machines on groups too, didn't we? We had to go into the config file because uh, there's too many groups to be displayed or something. It wouldn't. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right it didn't, it didn't, and we had to search and then we couldn't. And then Webman, it didn't like my search parameters or something. So, yeah, so we had to go in and yeah. look at like Etsy groups or something. It is. Yeah, Webman's nice to uh, to be able to do something easy, but at the same time, you need to. Yeah, you yeah. need to know what you're doing. Exactly. I, Webmin is a beautiful tool to aid a system administrator who already knows how to edit the config files. Yeah. And that's another thing I love about it is it works with your standard config files. It it, it writes a config file that you can then read and edit. It that doesn't nice. totally f them up. Like, have you ever used SUSE's? Uh, oh, what's the yes. Have you ever used Susie's Yes? No. Oh, forget about it. You can't ever edit a config file again. Oh, geez. And if you do edit a config file, Yast stomps on it as soon as you uh. reboot the machine. It's just hard. It's a Yast is a horrible, horrible thing. So, yeah. I, I mean, like it, it's not that. a horrible thing. It's it's a good thing. It makes systems administration easy. But if there's something that you want to tweak that's not there on that graphical interface, you're pretty much effed when it comes to Yast. Whereas with Webmin, you can still go in and edit that config file, and Webmin's going to completely honor any changes you made to the file. That's awesome. Cool. Well, I think that's about it. That's all I have, Tony. All right. Well, thank you for Linux. All right. What, what is this timing? <laughs> all right. Um, Thank you for listening to the Sunday morning, Sunday morning Linux review with Tony Bemis. And and Bemis that now I stepped on you. Now you're going to have to write another time down and fix this one. <laughs> no, I think this is fun. Okay. <laughs> anyway, he's Tony Bemis with Bemis Hosting, and I'm Matt Anders with Charter School IT Tech. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binref.com. All Binref projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.